the Dolphinarian suspects a case of parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis. It's Friday, September 3rd, and we're back from our summer break, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Premature Paper Noter Protester, and with me today is Gordon Derek, contributing editor at Dutch News and 66-shike-6-sheep-shitposter. Wow. Did I do that well? I'm really impressed. You did pretty well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You need to explain this. What, uh, <laughs> I what's guess happening I do need here? to explain this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you've obviously fished this from uh, my Facebook timeline, where I just <laughs> put out this, uh, yeah. the, the, this very old tongue twister, the six shakes, six sheep sick. Uh, oh, you do because I was too. bored one day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I need a job title for Gordon, I just go to his Facebook page, and that's basically the only only time I log in on 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 Facebook, and then I saw this. Mm-hmm. But what what you actually wanted to talk about was the weather, didn't you? I did really want to talk about the weather. Yes. Cause so because uh, it, it's I'm it's, giving you the opportunity now to start ranting about <laughs> the no, well, not ranting about the weather, ranting about no, Dutch not people about hating the weather. Yeah. the weather. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Because it. it it, it's been a, a well. What kind, what kind of summer has it been for you, Paul? Uh, well, I I I I hated it actually. Yeah, I, see, uh, lots of people hated it. Yeah, but yeah. I don't I don't get what the problem is. People <laughs> and and the the statistics have, back, have backed me up here. It has been a perfectly yeah. normal, regular summer. It's been pleasantly <laughs> warm, average. low twenties. Yeah. It's been an average summer. I think uh, the, uh, uh, the the statistics say it's been I think point two of a degree warmer than than average. Hmm. Um, of the average, and that's going back over the records of the start of the 20th century. It's been absolutely fine. There's been, if you were in, if you're in Limburg this summer, or then, then you had a terrible time because it flooded. Yeah, yeah the, the place of, uh, um, yes, so some of the towns down in Limburg were absolutely washed out. That's a different scenario. And I think in some parts of Brabant and Kilderland, they did have genuinely very heavy rain. But the rest of the country, it's just been a normal, regular summer. But because we've got global warming now everyone's kind of expectations of what summer should be have been completely skewed. So now people people start moaning if it's not 35 degree heat in middle mid-August. When actually in the Netherlands, it's terrible when it's 30 degrees yeah. in the midsummer because this country's not set up for it. And, you know, all, all, all the buildings are bricks. But, but so everything just <laughs> uh, heats up like a, like a potter's kiln. And it's absolutely unbearable. You sit there cooking in your house. So I can't understand why people want it to be more than about 25 degrees in this country it just doesn't it's, it's, it's not necessary i think you know if, if 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 you complain about the summer you must be a fan of either skin cancer uh, sweating <laughs> in a tent mosquitoes or yellow grass and i'm i can do without all those things in my life i think it's been a perfectly decent respectable summer i've been able to walk around in a t-shirt it hasn't rained very much but it's rained enough so that the you know the vegetation stays nice and green like it should be it's been what are people complaining about People need to get I, in the I sea, which is which is very nice and pleasantly warm because of the ambient temperatures we've been having. I have to admit that uh, the grass is still pretty green, indeed. Mm. Uh, normally, uh, the grass would have been turned yellow uh, uh, somewhere in, at the beginning of August. That that hasn't happened this summer, indeed. But uh, you know, I stayed in the Netherlands. I didn't go on holiday. Um, my plan was to just go to the beach as 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 much as possible. But uh, there was not a single day during the entire summer where it was 
hot enough to 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 travel uh, by car more than an hour to the beach uh, somewhere in in Zeeland mm-hmm. and spend your day there. So. Um, uh, uh, of course, you do not want to have it uh, over 30 degrees because, you know, that's simply too hot. But if it's over 30 degrees, then you go to the beach and you you can you have a very cool day over there. But if it's only 21 or 22 degrees, then the beach is simply too cold. So, yeah, I understand why, why people are complaining about it. Uh, and also a lot of people uh, decided to stay in the Netherlands and go camping in Zeeland or somewhere else. Uh, they had a very rainy uh, summer as well. So, yeah, I... I understand why people are complaining about it, but I do um, understand, I do acknowledge that uh, uh, two hot summers are uh, also very awful. So, um, yeah, on average, I think if you compare it to last year and this year, you know, on average, we had a we had a very good uh, two two summers, I think. We have, we have three. Well, I think last summer um, was was fine. I think we had one week in August when it got really yeah, it was, oppressively hot, but the rest yeah. of the time it was okay. The, the year before though was was a nightmare because that was when it got up to I think thirty eight, forty degrees in some places for a very long time. And yeah. that, that's not nice anywhere, even if no. you're you know, if you're in Spain or Italy or. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just not pleasant. So yeah, my my sisters went to the south of Italy, I believe. Yes, yeah, so, uh, the, the the sort of the heel of the of the Italian boot, yeah. and uh, yeah, they had days when it was over forty degrees, so they couldn't do anything. They they were basically, uh, you know, stuck in 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 the villa. They rented and they couldn't go anywhere until uh, you know late at night, basically. And uh, yeah, that's also not my ideal summer uh, 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 holiday, indeed. Yeah, I. Uh, that, that's just simply too hot. I think yeah. in general we have the best climate here in the Netherlands. It's not the the, the summers are not too hot, the winters are not too cold. Yeah. Sometimes it rains, but in yeah. general we, we, we have we, we a don't perfect get things climate. Like, you know, we don't get really awful things like hurricanes in the autumn. You know, nope. we, it's, yes, it's generally pretty occasional good. flood only. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, we 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 have a technical solution for that at least in the western part of the country. So um, yeah, it's uh, we have a per- we have the perfect climate. Yeah, but I, people I, just I love to moan about it. And basically, That's if right. it's if it's under twenty two degrees, it's too cold. If it's over twenty four degrees, it's too hot. So no one's ever satisfied. Nope. But you were moaning about another thing this week, Paul, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is uh, again a seasonal thing, uh, which is the arrival of Paper Norton in August. To my horror. <laughs> I saw them in the shelves in the supermarket, and I'm a firm believer that paper notice should only be eaten when a certain bishop from Spain uh, is present here in the Netherlands. Uh, 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 I, I, I don't think that's the period of time you're allowed to eat paper nota, and that's not going to happen in, what is it? When, when does Sinterklaas arrive? Somewhere mid, uh, mid-November, you, right? Yeah, mid, yeah. Uh, f- yeah, first half of November. Yeah, so we are 50 days too early, I think, with the paper nota. So, um, yeah, I, I just uh, uh, I forbid every, every listener here to eat paper nota until uh, Sinterklaas arrived in the Netherlands by steamship. Yeah, I've been horrified to see people posting pictures of paper nota in their shops. And I think some people uh, have even actually bought them and had them in yeah. their house. And I think uh, I, yeah, those people's houses should be marked with a cross on the door <laughs> because so, yeah. so, so that people don't go in inadvertently and see this uh, yeah. appalling scene. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I mean, every every year uh, there is op about it, right? And people tend to believe that uh, the paper notes come into the shelves earlier and earlier every year. But that's not the case. It's always the first week of September when they arrive in the shelves. Um, but still, I think that uh, that's an abomination. Yeah, I agree. 
even though uh, it's also part of the Sinterklaas tradition to complain about paper notes already in the shelf. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, it's always nice to uh, to know that Sinterklaas is uh, uh, the holidays are coming, right? It is. It's nice to keep yeah. those uh, traditions going. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's not the worst uh, Sinterklaas tradition, sent, but <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> All right, and that brings us to the OPEF of the week. Uh, we had a long summer with plenty of OPEF, and uh, I think we'll discuss uh, plenty of them during the course of this episode. But this week's OPEF comes from the new Tweede Kamer building. Uh, as we all know, the Binnenhof complex was in desperate need of an intensive renovation, and that five and a half year project finally started on July 1st uh, earlier this year. And this also meant that the Tweede Kamer had to move to its temporary location in the dreaded B67 building. That's the uh, former Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs next to The Hague Central Station. During the summer, MPs and journalists were given tours in the building. Uh, they shared everything uh, with the world on Twitter, of course. And, you mean, uh, you, mean yeah. you did, Paul? Sorry, what? You mean you did? No, did no, you no. I did. One, did you not go on these tours? No, 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 I didn't I go. I did. Yeah. yeah, in the in the former in the in the in the original Binnenhof complex, but oh, I wasn't okay. allowed to go to the new building. But oh, these okay. journalists and all these MPs they shared photos and videos of of the interior, and I, I expected it to be a a concrete jungle, but that it would be so depressive and so grey that that just. Uh, yeah, it was beyond my wildest expectations, I have to admit. <laughs> um, one nice feature of the building, though, is that the complete plenary chamber of the parliament has been moved in its entirety to the basement of the former ministry. Uh, not everything could be taken to the new location because the ceilings of the basements turned out to be too low for the iconic paintings that adorned the uh, Tweede Kamer chamber. Uh, instead, a Dutch artist called uh, Jos de Putter was asked to create a substitute piece of art for the walls behind the chair, the cabinet and the speakers. Uh, his artwork was revealed in one of the tours, but not every Everyone was convinced of the artistic value of his art. The piece is called Earth and it contains five panels with rocks, stones and dirt that are hung vertically on the walls. Some people thought the artwork resembled a climbing wall and others asked if the mud is supposed to be used by politicians <laughs> to throw at each other during heated debates. No. Uh, the art came with a price tag of 200,000 euros, which is nothing compared to the 243 million euro budget overrun, which was announced on literally the first day of the Binnenhof renovation yeah which and which is almost certain to increase as the yeah uh, as it, the it was already an increase and is delayed yeah it was already an increase of 50 percent so that was day one and the budget overrun was already 50 percent so uh yeah we have much more up have to come uh definitely but did you see the piece of art did you I see, did a see the of piece it? of art yes what did uh, you think of it it's kind of i just it looked like uh sort of i, I went mud walking across the vadensee one time <laughs> yeah. and it kind of just looked like the the, the bottom of the vadensee at low tide That's yeah, what I thought, yeah. So. everybody put their shoes uh, covered in mud on on a piece of uh, wood and yeah. they hung that on, uh, on on the walls that's what it looks like yeah, yeah. now i don't think it should be it should be worth two hundred thousand euros but his initial idea was that he wanted to have monitors on uh on the wall which would depict also sorts of uh, 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 yeah, scenes from the Netherlands, but uh, that idea was uh, rejected because uh, it was feared that these monitors could be hacked and someone yes. could you know, put other images on. You, uh, you, could, you could have a live feed to uh, Thierry uh, TV channel or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They were also worried about neo-Nazi uh, 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 text, or, for example. I, I generally believe they were just worried about porn, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, 
you wouldn't want uh, to see that when uh, when you're you watching really? uh, when you're no. uh, when you're when you're uh, listening to Mark Rutte indeed. Um, so he said, well, if I can't go high tech, I will just go low tech, and that's why he came up with this piece of art. So it has a little bit of a nice background, but still, it just looks pretty ridiculous, I think. Yeah. Um, still, I thought Sievert van Linde could buy forty-five of these artworks. Yeah, uh, and still have just... plenty enough money to uh, to buy a Tesla. So yeah, it's well, um... they, they should just have hung all of Sievert van Linden's face masks <laughs> that they'd never used in the <laughs> yeah. on the walls this of the building. This is how, this is how we the... spent the taxpayers' they, they money. They really yeah, spent that... the money, so it wouldn't have cost them anything more. Yeah, that would be much more <laughs> an interesting piece of art. Yeah, you yeah, should you should you should propose this to the yeah, to the I wish I thought of it earlier. <laughs> yeah. In this week's episode, we give you a summary of everything that happened in the formation process, uh, because remember, we still do not have a government almost six months after the general elections. We will also update you on the pandemic and the Dutch handling of the evacuation of Afghans from Kabul, and we will tell you why you can't go to the beach in Zandvoort this weekend. Yeah, although you didn't want to anyway, Paul, because you, you were complaining it was too cloudy. <laughs> That's right. It's too, well, uh, how's the weather looking this weekend, actually? I don't actually, know. it's not looking too bad, although no, the beginning of next week will be better. But uh, this uh, weekend is going to be uh, yeah, a mix of sun and cloud. Uh, 20, 20, 20 degrees or something in something. Yeah. So, yeah, the fact you're nice, banned from uh, nice the beach means that all of a sudden you'll want to go now. Exactly, yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> the academic year kicked off this week uh, with a row about the more relaxed coronavirus rules on campus. Students will not have to socially distance in lectures or wear masks, and up to 75 people will be allowed to congregate in lecture halls. Masks will still be required when walking in school and university corridors. Many university leaders have welcomed the move. Han van Krieken of the Universities and Colleges Association, VNSU, said, We made it very clear to the ministry that it was extremely important for us to remove the 1.5 metre rule. But the government's outbreak management team advised ministers to wait until October to relax the rules, and some lecturers also voiced concerns. Matt Cornell, who teaches comparative literature at the University of Amsterdam, quit his job in protest at the move oh. which he said was irresponsible. The cabinet hopes to abolish most of the remaining rules, including face masks on public transport on September the 20th, and take the last step, which is reopening nightclubs, remember how well that went last time, on <laughs> November the 1st, if, yeah. if the numbers support it. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be um, wise to wait until October to to uh, uh, to lift. Uh, uh, do you want to have meter rule on universities and on schools? Because you know, last uh, summer um, everyone came back from holiday. Uh, uh, a lot of people were infected in in uh, abroad, and uh, in these universities and in these schools, a lot of uh, uh, students were also infected as a result. Um, so yeah, I think it would have been wise to wait a month to see uh, how things are progressing but um, yeah they've decided to take the plunge and uh, yeah it's yeah. caused some controversy again yeah yeah so uh, how are the numbers actually looking right now in the Netherlands yeah I find them at the moment quite quite hard to read uh, because uh, they haven't really been moving up or down for the last two or three weeks they've been sort of hanging so infections have yeah. crept up since mid-August from around 2300 a day uh, to 2500 uh, but the percentage of positive tests, which is often an early warning sign, has cooled off in the last week from 14% to just over 12%. But, I mean, in absolute terms, these are still pretty high numbers. I mean, that's 100 people in 100,000. 
uh, testing positive every week. And the yeah. worry is, of course, as you said, that uh, this time last year was when the second wave began. It began in the university towns, particularly, because students came in from the holidays and they mingle. Uh, so you're meeting one set of people at your, uh, at your lectures. Uh, you're meeting another set of people in your accommodation. You haven't got much opportunity to social distance. And then you go out and socialize with another group. So sure enough, the, the virus spread quite quickly. And the, young, and the younger population, of course, are much less likely to be vaccinated as well. Only about uh, two-thirds of people between 18 and 25 have had uh, both vaccine shots. So, yeah, having 75 people in a lecture hall with no masks on and no distancing uh, doesn't seem like the most sensible move when you still haven't got your numbers really down to a safe level. And also hospital numbers are still hovering around the sort of 650 mark, and just over 200 people are in intensive care. And again, these are much higher figures than there were at the start of the second wave, and the worry is, as we move into autumn, that the infection levels will start to creep up again, and we will start to get you know, more problems in the hospitals and the intensive care units. Yeah, even though the general population is, of course, better protected now than they were uh, a year ago because of the vaccines, but still it's... It uh, is, but you also have this much more infectious Delta variant going around, yeah. which is harder to control. And just the fact that we have, yeah. even with the vaccine levels we have now, which is, I think, about 63% of, every, of the whole population is now vaccinated, you still have 600 people in hospital, so... Yeah, it's still a lot, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, the Netherlands turned red again this week on the ECDC's travel map, didn't uh, didn't we? Yeah, the ECDC highway to hell. Uh, <laughs> there were three provinces classed as high risk by the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control before this week. Uh, but on Thursday, the other nine joined them uh, as red on the map. And in fact, quite a lot of regions around Europe have been turning red. So all of just about, I think all of France and Spain now, um, about half of Germany, we, we, uh, what used to be West Germany is all red, um, but East Germany is, is yellow. So I think uh, we have to bring back communism, basically, to, 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 to combat uh, COVID. It's the only way. Yeah, I also think uh, 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 the PvdA was very happy to see finally a map again with the Netherlands completely red. But yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Nostalgia for them. But I think that's mainly down to the... Yeah, we still have this very high test positivity rate. 12% is a very high number. The ECDC uh, say that uh, you need to get your positive rate down below 4% um, in order to uh, be able to have uh, higher numbers of infections and still not go into the red zone. Mm. And, of course, this is the map that's used by European Union countries to decide what travel restrictions to impose. So the danger now, or the question people are asking is whether it will be harder to cross the border now. Obviously, the, the summer's over, so holidaymakers yeah. aren't are concerned but if you're going to visit your family if you're traveling on business uh, you, you don't want to face a whole new batch of restrictions back at the end of july when dunson met Janssen was all the rage um uh, germany uh, for example imposed uh, rules on dutch tourists saying you had to have a negative test results to cross the border uh, but that's maybe less likely to happen this time because germany is one of those countries where cases are also going up to the kind of levels we've seen in the netherlands over the summer yeah, and I am, uh, as we speak, um, browsing through the uh, lists of uh, songs by ACDC, uh, <laughs> <laughs> looking for a pun, but I can't really find one. So I think we can just move on. We can just move on. Yeah, uh, the, uh, and the other thing to say is that uh, I saw on Friday morning uh, that uh, the, the government is talking about moving this date of 
September the 20th back to the 25th, so that uh, the, the delaying the easing restrictions by five days. But mainly that's because actually they, they haven't got time to change the law on the, the, the one and a half meter rule is actually it was, was enshrined in law. And yeah. they can't change the law in time for the 20th of September, so they want to shift everything back to the 25th. Mm, okay, yeah. So, uh, And that's also the date that uh, everyone expects to uh, have the face masks, uh, 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 the uh, the face masks in public transportation to be scrapped, right? I mean, that's yes. everyone. I hear everyone talk about that, even though there's no... Uh, there hasn't been any news about it or something, but everyone just uh, just expects it. Prime Minister Mark Rutte and other political leaders used the summer to actually start negotiating a coalition agreement, so now we finally have a new cabinet that's ready to take over. Hooray! No, of course not. <laughs> Almost six months after the general election of March 15th, we still do not have a new government and the coalition talks, if they have ever started, seems to yet again be in an absolute impasse. I think we are actually further away from the, uh, yeah. from the, from the line as we were. It, uh, I think these uh, co coalition talks uh, really have uh, been uh, designed by MC Escher. They just keep going around. <laughs> they keep going round and round in circles and telling you they're yeah. making progress. But then yeah, you look yeah. and you see they're, they're, they're on a lower step than they were yesterday. Everybody keeps saying uh, the same thing again, again, again. Yeah, yeah. it's. Um, I think the MC Escher painting is a very good metaphor for uh, <laughs> f for the coalition uh, talks. Yeah. Uh, so remind us about uh, where things were before uh, we went away for the summer. Yeah, before the summer, informateur Mariette Hamer concluded after countless meetings and discussions that the coalition talks weren't leading to anything. Uh, remember, we have the three so-called engine block parties, which are regarded as the foundation of each possible new coalition. These are Mark Rutte's VVD party, which won the election, followed by Foreign Affairs Minister Sigrid Kaars D66 and Finance Minister Wopke Hoekstra's CDA party. Together, they have 73 seats in the Tweede Kamer, and that's only three short for an absolute majority. Uh, one of the options was to simply continue the coalition of Rutte's uh, third cabinet uh, and add Christenuni to the engine block, which would make a coalition of 78 seats. But this option faced opposition by Deza's assessor, mostly because of their fundamental disagreements on medical ethical issues. Kaag, on the other hand, prefers a progressive coalition with a left-wing party, that is PvdA or GroenLinks. Either one of them is enough for a majority, but these parties can paint on the promise that they would not join a coalition without one another, uh, which is an idea that is in turn rejected by both CDA and VVD, who feel that a coalition with two left-wing parties is simply one too many. Uh, and that was the deadlock we wore before the summer, and there were uh, two options, uh, and they were both rejected by uh, the others. But Marietta Hammer did send Rutte and Kach into the summer break with some homework to, to do in the holidays, right? Yeah, uh, she concluded that something needed to be done to break the impasse and uh, Hammer's idea was that the leaders just needed something to, you know, start negotiating. Uh, yeah. Hammer told Kach and Rutte as the two winners of the election to start writing and sketch out a coalition agreement draft which would uh, form the basis for negotiations with the other parties. Uh, other parties could join in or talk about it and then uh, hopefully in the end that would lead to, to an actual agreement. Um, uh, Mid-August, uh, that was a bit later than planned, Kaag and Rutte finished that document, uh, which Kaag called, 
<clears throat> the start of the beginning of a possible concept of an agreement. <laughs> There's something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I started. To, I tried to uh, to to translate it literally yeah. from Dutch, but you know <laughs> that would make things even even more ridiculous. But it was something like that. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, it's, it's like on Amazon these days. You don't order things. You pre-order things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. It's like a pre-ordered, not oven-ready uh, potential <laughs> possible deal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They even called it the pre-formation which uh, <laughs> which sounds pretty disgusting i think yeah. um and also uh yeah that's 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 also i always wonder why why they do that pre-ordering that's just ordering right or, ordering, a, yeah. or 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 the uh, uh the the pre-premiere of a movie i mean you, yeah. sh- you show it for the first time so it's by definition a um but st- an, uh, i'm yeah, we're drifting away yeah yeah, um, so they presented their uh, concept of an agreement, but the day before the parties would meet again to start the formation after the summer break and discuss the document with the informateur, uh, Sigrid Kaag gave an interview to the Algemeen Dagblad where she rejected the coalition with the ChristenUnie and this was the final straw uh, for the ChristenUnie and they subsequently said they were no longer willing to resume the talks. Um, yeah. That was um, August 17th. Okay, so, so, so the one thing they were asked to do over the summer, right, they had one job, which was to... Yeah. Uh, which was, to, which was to write this uh, this document, this draft pre-ordered coalition <laughs> possible concept deal, whatever you want to call it, uh, in order to bring other parties on board. And the effect was to actually alienate uh, one of the potential partners. Yeah, well, that wasn't the effect <laughs> of the of the document. That was just the effect yeah. of of, of Kaag's interview, where she basically said, "Yeah, yeah. We, we we as Deze Sister Party uh, are not willing to talk uh, with Kristenuni about uh, forming a coalition." Yeah. Um, the thing is that um, you know, on substance, uh, there they there aren't that much disagreements. Uh, that's also what Hamer said, right? She said, yeah, uh, basically, there is a lot of common ground, and there's a, a lot of uh, agreement, uh, enough agreements to actually start negotiating, but the parties just don't want to uh, yeah. work together with each other because of party political reasons. Yeah, and because of the disimage, image, they're worried about the impression it would give to their voters that they're too willing to concede. But I think Ket Jansekers of the Kristanuni did say when the details of this document were leaked to NSA, he said this is unmistakably a um, a an agreement drawn up by two liberal parties, and he yeah he didn't want anything to do with it. So I think the document was part of the reason that Chris Nooney uh, uh, dropped out of the talks. Yeah, but the main reason was, was the was the interview uh, with Kaag, and it was also yeah. ophef because uh, the day before her interview, Kaag invited Jesse Klaver and uh, Lilian Plume, the leaders of Christen, uh, the leaders of uh, GroenLinks and uh, Labour, uh, to her home for a dinner. Um, uh, and a lot of people saw some Machiavellian uh, uh, conspiracies uh, yeah. uh, in this because it was the day uh, before she shut the door for the Christenunie, basically forcing the talks with these two left-wing parties uh, to resume. Um, and there was Ophef because Kaag uh, um, uh, didn't cook herself uh, the yes. dinner. She uh, <laughs> ordered it from a caterer and a lot of people thought that was elitist. And uh, uh, even though, I mean, she could have just... Uh, she could just go to a, a snack bar, right? Got exactly. Some, uh, That's also a and yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, that was also a nice, a nice little op Yeah. Um, so that, that that really left us with the uh, with only one option. So uh, we now have a six-party coalition, right? No. Because the coalition with two left-wing parties remained unacceptable for Rutte and Hoekstra, and in an effort to solve this impasse, 
this is quite remarkable. GroenLinks and PvdR proposed something unprecedented. Their idea was that they would enter the negotiations as one party with only one negotiator instead of two, effectively merging the two factions in parliament into one relatively large left-wing bloc. Uh, there were rumors, uh, however, that this was actually a demand by VVD and CDA, but both GroenLinks and PvdA categorically denied this in their hastily organized emergency party conferences last weekend uh, in order to ask their members permission for the pact. Uh, both parties got overwhelming support for the plan, but on Tuesday, Rutte and Hoekstra informed Klaver and Plume that they were not willing to start a coalition negotiation with them, uh, whether they merged uh, to one party or not, basically shutting the door for the last coalition option. Yeah, which does, of course, raise the whole question of why Pefidi and Hoeknings don't go the whole hog and just merge. But anyway. Yeah, that was that was part of their plan, right? We will yeah. only merge in Parliament, in the Tweede Kamer, but yeah. uh, the other two parties in the rest of the country remain separate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they, they we are definitely moving towards uh, towards a merging of these parties. This is a whole different story. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a first sign that uh, there is uh, actual support uh, among the members of both parties uh, for this idea. Um, But yeah, it's a very... I don't think this ever happened that two parties merged in uh, the Tweede Kamer and uh, uh, went on as one faction and uh, while simultaneously remain uh, two separate political parties. I mean, it's it's a very unprecedented idea, very creative, uh, but it wasn't... um, uh, enough for uh, Rutte and uh, and Hoekstra to uh, to uh, st- yeah to be willing to start the negotiations. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Maria Tahama has now finished her job as informateur, and uh, what's uh, what happens next? What's the next stage? She gave a press conference on Thursday and she advised that the next informateur should be someone from the VVD party. Uh, this will most likely be Johan Remkes. Ah. Uh, so, I mean, Mr. Stickstoff. Mr. Stickstoff. Yeah. I read in the article on DutchNews.nl that <laughs> his nickname was yeah. Mr. Stickstoff. But I thought we on the podcast just called him that. But is I that th- his genuine th- nickname? I thought <laughs> someone would call him Mr. Stickstoff somewhere before, but maybe not. Oh. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was something that we I came didn't, up I with on the podcast. I didn't think we made it up. Perhaps. Mm. Well, uh, he, is, he, he, he is Mr. Stickstoff. He is basically the uh, Herman Schenk Willink of... I think he is even even uh, more of a troubleshooter than uh, Herman Schenk Willink because Herman Schenk Willink you only call when your formation process is is, is in, a, in a deadlock. Johan Remkes, you can call for everything. If you have a municipality that needs a new mayor, if you have a province that is an absolute shithole, you can call mm. Johan Remkes and he will solve it. Yes. So uh, 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 he, is the, he is the super, super man of 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 of, of a political uh, trouble yeah. and he said he was uh, going to he was going to stay on in his job as uh, governor of limburg which is his yeah. other big troubleshooting job which is not to do with the flooding it's to do with the uh, the fact that limburg's uh, coalition <laughs> fell apart over all kinds yeah. of nepotism corruption and uh, uh yeah developments yeah, down exactly. the south but uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so he's going to be troubleshooting on two fronts at once and um, Johan Remkes can do the job, definitely. If Hold anyone on. can do it, Johan Remkes can. Indeed. Yeah. He's, he's, um, he's tasked to investigate the possibility of a minority cabinet formed by VVD, D66 and CDA, so uh, 73 seats. Uh, and Hamer added that she is worried that parties will not be able to put their political differences aside and form a stable coalition. Uh, she also said that it wasn't a problem to find 
a common ground between the parties and that there was a broad consensus on how to tackle uh, the major problems of the Netherlands, uh, but that party politics was the factor that frustrated the, the progress of the formation process. Um, yeah, despite what parties always said, right, they always said when they entered the, the, the talks with Marietta Hamer that uh, substance and the content of the, the uh, uh, and uh, was the basis of the talks. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, Hammer clearly says that uh, this is uh, actually not the case. Yeah, it's it's down to personalities and uh, and, and and party identities, particularly. Yeah. And, uh, I, I was the thing that struck me was uh, how. Um, Written Hoekstra continuously went on in the last couple of weeks about uh, how a five-party cabinet would be too unstable. When it seems that the the real instability uh, in the in, in in the three parties that uh, the kind of the core of this uh, um, what's now the minority coalition uh, is the, is the CDA, the Christian Democrats, because they're they're falling apart and they're about to have a special congress next weekend. Um, which is triggered by the fact that Peter Omzicht uh, quit in June over his uh, when his critical report over the party's election performance was leaked so they're actually going to lose another of their seats they lost four seats at the election uh went down to 15 they'll now be 14 when Omsik comes back from sick leave he's on sick leave with stress so if anything yeah. uh the the the, the, the yeah it, it seems that uh, yeah the CDR are the kind of unst- instability at the core of the coalition here yeah, and the question is all also uh, how many CDA members or uh, elected officials will um, uh, step uh, uh, will make the switch from the CDA to uh, Peter Omzicht's new party. Uh, there's also a big chance that that will uh, it will be a sort of exodus when uh, Peter Omzicht comes back from sick leave and actually start building his new political party. Um, so yeah, it's. Um, it's indeed, uh, 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 we have a lot to look forward to. And I think uh, uh, a lot of uh, politicians uh, would have wanted to see the formation uh, ended by the time this, uh, this special uh, CDA conference, uh, 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 you know, is happening. I think it's, it's September 11th, right? Yeah, I think yes. it's uh, September yeah. 11th. Um, but yeah, that's um, definitely something that will frustrate the, the formation progress even uh, even more. But uh, yeah, we will uh, have to wait and see how uh, how things will uh, develop. Yeah, there has to be some talk as well that uh, there might not be a three-party coalition. There might even be, or Dayson Zesto particularly, might push for a two-party coalition with Feifei Day. Do you see that idea flying at all? Feifei Day and Sadia. Yeah, Feifei Day and Dayson Zesto. Without Sadia. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, CDA has, what is it, 16 seats or 15 seats? Yeah, there are 15 seats? seats just now, yeah. So that would make this coalition uh, 58, 58, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, no. I mean, no. That, I mean, also from a from a favor day point of view, Mark Rutte, uh, of course, in the April 1st debate on uh Peter Omzicht, uh, he got a motion of no confidence, which was supported by the entire opposition. He also had yeah. a motion of uh, disapproval, which has no constitutional uh, effect, but is still a clear sign from 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 Parliament that yeah. they, you know, They're displeased uh, that him. they were very yeah. displeased with him. Yeah. Uh, that was supported by everyone except the favorite day. I mean, uh, I, I would be surprised if he would be willing to step into a, a minority cabinet um, uh, at all, because there's no guarantee that uh, he will not be voted away. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's such a small coalition with only favorite day, they that would be no, he, that would be unacceptable for my I, yeah. I think. 
No, I don't think Ritter would go for that. I, I can see why Kach uh, uh, might at least try and push for it because with the Fefide and CDA in uh, as partners, they're kind of in a minority within the coalition. Yeah, and then she's got to, that. Really gives her. I was interested that she said last week that the ball was in Grutter's court now because I think when you look going forward to the coalition or the, the the next stage of coalition talks, which is actually to try and negotiate a coalition agreement, so a whole policy platform for the next four years and its cabinet term. If you've got Fefe Day with Sedia uh, together, Day says Zestach, they got quite a good majority in parliament for a lot of their policies. I mean, they'll get support from Fefe they'll get support from Hoon Links, from, uh, from Folt. Of course, we've got three MPs and a kind of a junior Day Zestach almost. Uh, but their, their real problem is but then get their policies passed to CDR in the coalition talks. So yeah. you can see why Kach would uh, be quite keen to try and find a way to kind of manoeuvre CDR out of the process. But I don't see it happening. I think Rutter will want CDR on side and he will want, if it's going to be a, mi- a minority, it'll be a minority of 73 or 72 rather than 58. It's... Uh uh, th- these are all questions that should have been answered uh, four and a half months ago, I think. Yes. Uh, I'm just very tired of everything and I just want a government. Uh, at, at, I'm reaching the point that I don't even mind how, <laughs> how the coalition <laughs> looks like. Just, I want these ministers to stand on the on the steps of uh, Paleishuis and Bos and take the goddamn picture. <laughs> to the border scene. Yeah, yeah and... Uh, we can all go, it's a wrap, we can all go home. I fear it's going to go on for months more. But, yeah, me too. Yeah. Three ministers in the caretaker government gave up their seats as MPs this week, straight after the Council of State said they didn't have to. The Administrative Court was asked to rule on whether their dual role was compatible with the Constitution. It said that though there was nothing to stop MPs joining an interim cabinet, the situation was unfortunate. And that was enough for Dylan Jesselgers, Dennis Wietzma and Stephen van Weyenberg to vacate their seats. In a letter to Parliamentary Chair Ferrer Bergkamp, they called on MPs to hold a debate on the fundamental question that the court posed in its judgment. Should MPs be allowed to join a caretaker cabinet? Could you very slowly explain what the <laughs> issue is here? <laughs> okay, I will try. And uh, you can, uh, you're welcome to correct me um, okay. because you probably know this better than me. But generally, the Dutch constitution enforces a strict separation of powers. So the legislative, executive and judicial branches are kept apart. MPs are not supposed to be in the government because they're supposed to be scrutinizing and controlling it. But that doesn't apply to caretaker cabinets. The most common scenario is that after a general election, you always have this period, as we know, as we're going through now, of several months when the next government has been negotiated and formed. And during that period, the previous cabinet simply stays in office. But of course, they don't have a mandate and there are laws or there are rules restricting what laws they can actually pass. So even if the ministers get elected as MPs, which happens very often, they're still allowed to keep their cabinet posts until the new cabinet is sworn in. Yeah, the the idea is that uh, the cabinet uh, offered their resignation to the king and uh, he takes it into consideration and only accepts it when there is a new government ready to to take over. And in this in-between period, uh, you know, the ministers can also stand for election because after all, they are politicians. So they're allowed to be uh, elected to to parliament, even though they are still 
you know, maintaining their job as as a uh, demissionary minister, as we call it in the Netherlands. And also looked it up, the word demissionary in the Oxford Dictionary, and it is an actual word in English. It does exist, yeah. It does exist with the same meaning, but... Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's still a weird word. It doesn't sound right, yeah, because we're just not used to the concept in, in more primitive, primitive <laughs> political cultures. Uh, but the problem this time was that new ministers were appointed to the cabinet during the interim period. So yeah. after the cabinet resigned and after the election, and a lot of people felt that wasn't right for them then to keep their seats as MPs. So Yeselgers, uh, who is a Feifei Day MP, was appointed in May because Rutte wanted an extra junior minister at economic affairs to deal with all the problems that are going on with climate and energy. And Viesma and Van Weinberg, they both replaced D66 colleagues who left the cabinet for new jobs. So that led to accusations that Rutte was kind of stretching the rules and stocking the you know cabinet with ministers who were still MPs and blurring the lines between parliament and the cabinet. But the question, I guess, is why they should be treated differently from ministers who are left over from the previous administration, like, for example, Mark Rutter, who's been an MP three times during his career as prime minister. Yeah, so uh, caretaker ministers can become MPs. And Mark Rutte argues that this is not a one-way street, but it's also a two-way street. MPs can also become caretaker ministers because, by definition, it is a caretaker government, so they are not, you know, real ministers. Yeah. Um and that's what Mark Rutte and the cabinet argues, but these constitutional scholars uh, say that this is not the case, it's only a one-way street. So uh, that was what the constitutional question was about. But now, um, uh, uh, after this OPEF and after this discussion and after this advice by the Council of State, these new ministers uh, have resigned as MP, even though, you know, if you feel like you can combine these jobs, then you don't have to resign, right? And even the yeah. Council of State said that this is not uh, necessary. So I, it puzzles me a bit why they would only resign after the Council of State says that uh, they're allowed to combine the job. So Yeah, it, it is very odd. I guess the danger is the issue now is left unresolved. Everyone thinks, well, these three have resigned, so it's fine. But of course, this is going to be a recurring problem because we're having... This very fragmented parliament is more getting more difficult and taking longer to form new governments. And you have situations as we had uh, over the summer where two junior ministers uh, resigned because they got uh, you know very nice, highly paid consultancy jobs yeah. elsewhere. And then you need to find people to take over from them. So I guess they, they, they need to take a look at the rules. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense that you know if you you need a person who is politically responsible for a ministry, so you need a, a minister or a deputy minister. The the question is now, can you ask an MP to become a caretaker minister or not? I think uh, we just need a clarification in the constitution because uh, the Council of State says that you know it's you can you can interpret it in different ways. And um, uh, the constitutional scholar said that uh, Margaret was setting a, a, a constitutional president, which wasn't allowed. Uh, but yeah, now the Council of State says that it actually is. But yeah. at the same time, Rutte and the cabinet seem to have yielded to the uh, position of the constitutional scholars. Yeah, mm. it's still it's still unclear, and we need uh, we need some clarification. And also, there was opf about the minister for infrastructure uh, because she, uh, you know, changed jobs, as you said. Yeah, Cora van Nienhuizen uh, quit the cabinet this week to take up a shiny new job as chair of Energie Nederland, which was highly controversial because she'll now be lobbying the government she's just left on behalf of some of the biggest companies and heaviest polluters in the Netherlands. Uh, also uh, a, a field where she was responsible for as a minister. 
Yes, indeed. Because she, for five five days in January, she was Minister for Economic Affairs after Eric Vibus resigned. Um, so, and she will now be the, the, her new job is going to focus very much on the Economic Affairs Ministry because it's responsible for energy policy. Yeah, and also she was a Minister of Infrastructure, and you know the energy supply is also a big part of the infrastructure. So there seem to be a lot of uh, uh, mixed interests here. I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, now there were rules uh, which barred former ministers from lobbying their old departments uh, for a period of two years, I think. There's, uh, but they were scrapped in 2019. No one quite knew why. Uh, Kaisha yeah. Olokhan was asked about it. Uh, she took a long time to come back with an answer. And in June this year, she said they were scrapped for technical reasons. But uh, conveniently for Corfo Neuenhausen, means she is now basically free to lobby uh, the government. The only snag is that uh, these rules still apply to the, uh, the civil servants in the department. So she can, talk, she can approach them, but they can't talk to her, hmm. apparently. That's how I understand it anyway. Uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, there was plenty of ophef about it. And around the Binnenhof, uh, uh, socialist MP Renske Leighton said the new managerial culture is disappearing out of sight. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I, I strongly feel that if you are a minister or a deputy minister, then you're serving, you know, the public and, 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 and the national interest. And you shouldn't just resign. Uh, and also that also applies, in my opinion, to MPs, by the way. You shouldn't resign because you find a, a nicer job. If you signed up for this job, then you know that you're just going to have to uh, to finish it and don't uh, quit um, uh, prematurely, in my opinion. Uh, Cora van Nieuwenhuizen has always said that she wanted to become the next prime minister of the Netherlands. She wanted to uh, be Mark Rutte's uh, successor. And I noticed that um, the office of uh, Energie Nederland is indeed closer to the Torentje than uh, her former Ministry of Infrastructure. So from, right. a, from a resume <laughs> point of view, she is becoming closer to, uh, to the Prime Minister office. If you want to help the Dutch News podcast going uh, through the years and possibly decades it will take uh, for the coalition talks <laughs> to conclude, why not consider becoming a sponsor on Patreon? Your donations really do help to keep this podcast going and we're very glad as ever to receive your comments and your questions which are always a key part of this podcast. We had a question this week uh, from a patron, uh, David Setland, uh, who asked us uh, if there's any other country in uh, in Europe uh, that uh, shuts down the way the Netherlands does over the summer, or what we thought generally about the, the, the how the Dutch summer holiday uh, compares uh, to other parts of Europe. Because uh, I, th- I, th- I think uh, it's not just the fact that people go on holiday, which they do everywhere, but the fact that over the six weeks in kind of mid-July to the end of August, everyone just kind of disappears or people who do stay at work cut back to shorter days and there's a general sense that the the, the whole place is kind of taking a break do we okay i think so it's comparable maybe to the situation in france where everyone disappears at the start of august for a whole month in italy as well you find the um uh, obviously the, the place is full of tourists a lot of the locals uh, go away or take a whole month off but it's I was definitely struck that in, 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 in the UK, obviously people take two weeks holiday over the summer, but uh, for the rest of the, uh, the period, they just carry on working as normal. But when I worked in an office briefly in the Netherlands, uh, over the summer break, people carried on working, but there, there were far fewer people in the office and there was a lot less work being done. And people would routinely just sort of clock off early about four o'clock. Yeah. And the whole, the, the whole concept of the bowfuck. I, was, uh, <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a job one time 
taking minutes um, at a, a, a company that was involved in a big uh, building project with uh, a load of countries from around the world. And it's really hard to, for, to, for the rest of people from other countries coming in to get their head around this idea of the bowfuck, where basically yeah. the whole construction industry all goes <laughs> off on holiday for the same time. And you can't, you can't get any materials in. You can't get anyone yeah. to do your work. You just have to stop for three yeah. weeks. Yeah, because yeah. because everyone's away, and it's also the Baufuck also um, was taken over by other sectors of the economy, right? Uh, yeah. Other shops were closed down because of the Baufuck. You're not in the construction industry. Why? Why would you care? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's, it became some sort of um, uh, 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 yeah. How do you say? Like a collective excuse, period yeah. of yeah. yeah, and an excuse to basically uh, drop your work and have a sort of easy vacation period on on your job. I th- also think that. Uh, a lot of the reason why people will clock off early or you know don't do a lot of work is because there is simply not a lot of work because other people are also taking a slower days basically so yeah that's i think that's also uh, one of the reasons why uh, we just collectively decided as a country to <laughs> take things slowly during the summer while other yeah. people are uh, are away and when everyone is back we will uh, well I wanted to say uh, 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 resume our hard work, but you know, um, <laughs> I think yeah. Ben Coates is listening. He uh, he will he will get mad if I say <laughs> he, that. Yeah, he will dispute that strongly. I would say I think it's a positive thing. I think in general it's one of the positive aspects of Dutch working culture that uh, you know when in, in the summer when the weather's good at home and you don't really need to go away, even though everybody does. Yeah, you, you just take it a bit easier and you catch up over the rest of the year. In general, you find uh, you know productivity. In the Netherlands, in terms of per work done per hours spent in the office, is is much higher than other countries, and perhaps it's because you do have this this cycle of um, slacking off in the summer and uh, catching up over the rest of the year. Yeah, and my impression is that in the Netherlands we take things slowly during the summer, but uh, yeah. uh, when I go to France or to Italy or to Spain during the summer and I drive through a, a village or a little town, then everything is just shut down in my experience. Mm. So I was always under the impression that this is not the case. But if uh, uh, if our, our dear patron <laughs> says so, then I'm uh, I'm willing to uh, to believe him. Yeah, I think it's coming from more of a uh, British or American perspective mm. where yeah. you, do, you, you, do, you don't get this kind of general slowdown or shutdown that over the summer, be. anything like as much. People just carry on slogging away, which, yeah, is maybe not as healthy. If you'd like to join our band of uh, patrons, uh, log on to www.patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Foreign Affairs Minister Sigrid Kaag said the Netherlands has offered Turkey and Qatar assistance in securing and operating the airport of Kabul. Kaag said this on Thursday in the Turkish capital of Ankara, where she made a stopover after a visit to Qatar and Pakistan. The assistance will primarily be technical and financial, but possibly also personnel will be sent to Kabul. Turkey and Pakistan are close to a deal with the Taliban over the management of Kabul's airport, which is crucial for the evacuation of people from Afghanistan. The Netherlands has evacuated some 2,500 people from Afghanistan following the takeover of the country by the Taliban, uh, but had to cease evacuations from Kabul after a number of terrorist attacks around the airport. According to Kaag, hundreds of Dutch nationals and thousands of Afghans with the Dutch link were left behind. They were advised to find a safe place and to wait for further instructions. Kaag also said a Dutch delegation has talked to the Taliban about evacuations from Afghanistan, but emphasized this does not constitute recognition of the Taliban regime. Additionally, the Dutch embassy in Afghanistan will be moved to Qatar. The Dutch Air Force maintains a small military presence in an undisclosed nearby country in case evacuations become possible again. 
Yeah, this is a big mess. And uh, Griffith, I think, was saying in Paris at the weekend, uh, already kind of uh, raising doubts about whether this pledge to get all the uh, Afghans who'd worked with the Dutch authorities out to the country is now kind of said, well, if they manage to get to other safe countries in the region, then we're not obliged to take them in anymore. Yeah. So already backtracking, I think. Yeah, worried about here. Wilders starting to attack him for uh, enabling a wave of uh, immigration. So that's a, that, that. That was a bit unsavory. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, because you know these people helped the Dutch efforts in Afghanistan, and their life are in in danger. So yeah, yeah, they they just need to be helped. And I think the Dutch government has a has a very strong responsibility in at least offering them uh, a safe place. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Taliban, they, they get a bad press, and uh, rightly, um, but uh, they did manage to form a government in two weeks, so perhaps uh, there's a lesson to be learned there. Maybe <laughs> Kar can, can ask some tips to, of the <laughs> while she's talking to them uh, how to form a government, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only one place to start this week's sports news roundup, and that's at Zandvoort. 16 months after it was postponed because of coronavirus, the lights will go green at the Dutch Grand Prix on Sunday for the first time since 1985. There's been plenty of controversy in the build-up to this weekend's race. Environmental groups went to court to try to have it cancelled because it caused too much pollution. Local residents have been complaining about the noise and traffic congestion and the fact that uh, Zandvoort has become a big open-air fortress for the weekend. You can't yeah. drive in or out without more paperwork than you need to, to, to get into, <laughs> get into uh, Germany during a pandemic. Prince Bernhard, the owner of the circuit, was criticised for asking Chef Special to perform at the event for free. And Max Verstappen, in his inimitable diplomatic way, said the trophy, which has been made from recycled Heineken bottles, was ugly. <laughs> did he? <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's given it a big thumbs down. On the track, the race couldn't be more perfectly set up, with Verstappen just three points behind world champion Lewis Hamilton after winning the shortest Formula One race in history in Belgium last weekend. <laughs> in fact, it wasn't even a race, was it? They just drove no. around behind the safety car for three laps and then came in again. For two laps, and uh, there was, was only laps, two, yeah. so they could call it a race on paper and distribute yeah. some points, but it was a farce indeed, yeah. Yeah. Um, so around 65,000 fans, um, which is two-thirds of the capacity of Zunford, under the coronavirus rules, will be cheering him on. And of course, that's more. there was more up around that because yeah. the events industry said if 65,000 people can pack into Zunford, why can't we have 10,000 you know, at our weekend concert? Yeah, a lot of uh, music festivals were cancelled uh, during the summer because they were only allowed to have 750 people uh present there so yeah, yeah. a lot of uh, uh discontent people uh the dutch grand prix at zandvoort is one of these things that everyone who is unhappy can channel their discontent <laughs> to and just uh, you know project it on it and complain about it uh, it's been a a, a a marvelous vehicle for this whether you want to go wanted to go to a music festival this summer whether yeah. you hate the, the the housing market because prince bernard is one of these people yeah. who own hundreds of houses in, in Amsterdam and rent them for ridiculous prices so you could complain about that and project your anger on, on the Sanford yeah. uh, Grand Prix yeah. as well. If you believe in the environmental apocalypse you could criticize this as well because you a lot of people tend to believe that this Grand Prix will single-handedly mean the end of the earth. So yeah it's been also for this it's already a great event I think. Yeah yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised actually that uh, Johan Remkes, Mr. Stickstoff, hasn't uh, been called in to sort it all out, basically, <laughs> especially as, you know, the, the nitrogen rules are another of the things that people have said. How yeah. can you have a Grand Prix going on when the rest of us have to drive at 100 kilometers an hour maximum in the daytime to try and cut nitrogen emissions? And here you have these, 
yeah, these Grand Prix cars going around for a weekend, um, you know, emitting huge amounts of uh, nitrogen and greenhouse gases. Yes, but on the other hand, if you look a little bit north, then you see Tata steel in the distance, <laughs> and uh, you know, compared to that, uh, the pollution is uh, and the emission is uh, is infinitesimally small, I think. But uh, yeah, for everyone, there is something to complain about. So uh, yeah, yeah, the circle will be complete when uh, Max Verstappen wins and scatters paper Norton into the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I would wow, that would be great. Yeah, and also saw a video of uh, Daniel Ricciardo, uh, a driver from McLaren, who was rolling uh, stroopwafels of the uh, banked corners uh, in uh, uh, in Zandvoort. Yeah, because Zandvoort is in the June, so it has a lot of spectacular corners. And he was yeah. testing uh, testing how steep the, the corner was by rolling uh, stroopwafels off it. So yeah, wow. it, uh, yeah. yeah, it looks spectacular. Yeah, I've driven around Zandvoort. Actually. Really? It's my, it's my 40th birthday present, day out oh. of Zandvoort, one of these corporate days. Ah, which so, car did you drive? Was it your own I car? I got you, to drive uh, a mix of cars, but what they they bring out the the old Formula Two cars, the sort of oh. very narrow ones, and you get to do a lap of the circuit in those. Um, so, and you, you go around. It was, it was just like the Belgian Grand Prix, actually. You do you go around in order. You're not allowed to overtake <laughs> ah, each other, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and you yeah, also yeah. have a go in sort of old, tuned up BMWs. It's quite a fun day out. Ah. So, did you manage to survive the Tarzan corner? Uh, I did, yeah, hmm. um, yeah. Not everybody did. One member of our group went off into the gravel, so uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I took it quite slowly, I have to say. So. I also have a nice uh, little backstory about the uh, Zandvoort uh, circuit, which we do not have enough time for, but I will uh, nevertheless uh, uh, tell it. Um, uh, the the Zandvoort uh, circuit was built in during the Second World War. Uh, yes. Zandvoort was a very nice uh, beach town with a lot of uh, uh, you know like the Kurhaus in Scheveningen. These kind of uh, hotels were all along the the boulevard in Scheveningen. But the the Germans demolished everything because they needed to construct the Atlantic Wall. And there was someone who always wanted to build a circuit. Uh, uh, a racing track in Zandvoort and he asked the Germans if he could use the rubble of these buildings yeah. uh, to start constructing um, <laughs> uh, uh, the track and he he basically tricked them because he said I will just build a nice parading ground which we can use after the war for the Wehrmacht to do ah. uh, you know nice parades and uh, that he built this this very long straight road next to the beach and that is still the main straight of the track Right. Um, so yeah, if you see Max Stopper or uh, Lewis Hamilton in his German car um, <laughs> speeding <laughs> along the main straight, then remember that this was yeah. meant, or at least uh, uh, the Germans thought it was meant as yeah. a Wehrmacht parading ground. Yeah, and they're driving over the ruins of um, yeah, of the, the Belle Epoque. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Belle Epoque. Yeah, that, that was destroyed by the Nazis. But a historical detail I liked was when, when they started doing Grand Prix racing at Zandvoort. They hadn't actually built any pit lanes. So they had to keep the cars in garages, in people yeah. just people's lock-up garages in the in in the town. Yeah, I think uh, someone sweet. said the the yeah. local Lidl uh, local supermarket there was yeah. uh, was used by uh, by Lotus and by um, Nicky Lauda, I believe uh, someone said. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, a lot of history in Zandvoort indeed. Uh, but that's not the only sport going ahead this weekend, though. No, uh, the Netherlands are playing a World Cup qualifying match on Saturday against uh, Turkey. Uh, Arania drew one all in midweek against Norway in Oslo. Uh, Louis van Gaal said his players gave the ball away too cheaply and dampened fans' expectations by saying, we can think this Dutch team are among the best in the world, but that's not the case. So good upbeat stuff <laughs> from Louis van Gaal. 
Uh, group G is almost as finely balanced as a Formula One Drivers' Championship. <laughs> Turkey are leading the group with eight points. Then come the Netherlands, Norway, and Montenegro. All got seven points. Uh, the Dutch, uh, after they've played Turkey, will play Montenegro at home on Tuesday night. Uh, four of their last six matches are at home, so they probably are just about favourites to qualify. Yeah, and you think uh, playing against Montenegro would be an easy win, but uh, you know Turkey uh, experienced yeah. that as well uh, uh, yeah, last so, week. Yeah, Turkey gave away an equaliser in the 98th minute of the weekend. Amazing, yeah. And the Dutch have been doing well at the uh, Paralympics, right? Yes, the Paralympics have picked up where the Olympic team left off in Tokyo. Uh, the Dutch are currently 7th in the medal table. Uh, they slipped down from 5th uh, overnight. Um, but they have already beaten their total from Rio in 2016, where they now have uh, 19 gold medals, 11 silvers and 14 bronzes. We don't have time to mention all of the winners, uh, but the standout performances maybe was uh, Jetsa Platt. He's won three gold medals in the men's triathlon, cycling time trial and road race uh, in the H5 category. The Dutch are also in the final of the men's quad uh, doubles in the wheelchair tennis. Uh, they upset the Australian favourites uh, to, to reach final of that event. And in the women's team, 53-year-old Janetta Janssen won the cycling time trial for her 10th Paralympic medal in a career that began at the Seoul Olympics in 1988. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Yeah, 1988 in Seoul, that was uh, the year that my, I remember uh, I watched that. My parents bought their first video recorder. So we could, uh, so, so I could watch because all because it was in South Korea, so all the events were in the middle of the night. And was that so, the reason why you bought the video recorder? That was the reason they bought the oh. video recorder. Yeah, um, Didier de Croote is going for a golden slam of major honors in the women's wheelchair tennis final, and she's also through to the doubles final with Anique van Goat. And the basketball team are through to the final against China after beating Germany fifty-two forty-two, and that was broadcast on uh, NOS Live uh, oh. on Thursday. Uh, did you watch it? No. Wheelchair basketball? You can watch the final on Saturday. I've never watched basketball actually, so but I will uh, I will see if it's uh, when when is it on Saturday? You said uh, it's on Saturday. Yeah, I think Saturday morning, around about eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, that sort of time. Oh, yeah, so nice, yeah. Uh, nice and early. Okay, great. Some good old-fashioned animal news now. Uh, employees of Dolphinarium in Harderwijk were perplexed after the birth of a baby stingray earlier this week. Not only because it was the first time a stingray was born in the park, but mostly because the mother hadn't been in contact with a male stingray for seven years. The Dolphinarium suspects a case of parthenogenesis, the phenomenon whereby female species produce offspring without the genetic contribution of a male. In other words, a spontaneous birth. That's an immaculate conception. Yeah, in the, st- in the stingray kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Does uh, this mean that uh, the, the stingray's lord and savior has arrived, as, <laughs> as was written in the scriptures? He, yeah, I think so. He will solve the nitrogen problem and uh, and and uh, the formation. I think. Um, yeah, we should call it Johan Remkes. I think. Um, this would be the first uh, time an uh, asexual reproduction is observed in stingrays. Biologists have also said that it is known that stingrays can carry the seed of a male for a longer period of time, even though seven years seems to be unrealistically long. Further DNA analysis of the baby stingray is required to determine what has actually happened. Naturally, the Dolphinarium has asked people on Facebook to help to find a name for the baby stingray. Uh, yeah, We already determined that it should be called uh, Johan Remkes or Zeesluis uh, Amuiden. There's no other option. Either of those two. There's no third option there. No. 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 
That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and also leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Gordon Derek. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week with hopefully a less long uh, episodes <laughs> <laughs>